In 1991, Jose Basulto, a CIA-trained political dissident from Cuba, founded Brothers to the Rescue. Their mission was to liberate Cubans oppressed by the tyrannical Castro regime. In its early years, Brothers to the Rescue focused on saving rafters who were trying to float to Florida, a trip that was often lethal. After U.S. immigration policy shifted and no longer gave shelter to those Cuban refugees, Brothers to the Rescue pivoted to become more confrontational against the Cuban government, dropping pro-democracy leaflets into Havana. The struggle came to a sad head in 1996 when a Cuban Air Force MiG shot down two Brothers to the Rescue planes, killing the four rescue workers aboard. Jose Basulto has said, everyone has a mission in life. We were hunting to save lives. In our text tonight, we're going to see brothers going into battle, not with a desire to kill, more a desire to save lives. It's a rescue operation, and it happens only because a believer is there and is ready to be used by God. It's a daring mission, seems impossible, but Abraham puts his life on the line to save those who do not deserve to be saved. And through his example, we are able to learn precious things about our own walk with the Lord. Genesis 14, verse 1. <clears throat> In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Chedorlaomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Birsha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemaber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. This is the first recorded war in the Bible. It's possible that there had been wars before in other places, but this is the first recorded war that we find. And here we see an alliance of five kings in the land of Palestine, kind of around where uh, Abraham lives, they get together and decide they're going to rebel against Chedorlaomer, the big king who was in charge of them. Now, Chedorlaomer ruled in what we now call Iran, and he gathered up a coalition of three other kings from east of Israel. Uh, for example, we can identify Shinar as modern-day Iraq, and we're not quite sure where the other two are, but kings from the east. The city-states of Palestine, like Sodom and Gomorrah and these others listed, they had been under his thumb for more than a decade. And whether it was due to his distance, because Chedorlaomer's kingdom was hundreds of miles away from Palestine, and we're only calling it Palestine because that was the region at the time Israel hadn't been founded. Of course, that land is Israel and belongs to Israel forever. But Maybe it's because he was so far away, or maybe it's just that they got together and decided they finally were strong enough to defend themselves. In that case, the five kings there in this region decided to rebel. And at first, it seemed like their plan worked with no problem. A year went by, and there were no consequences. And we see another year went by, still nothing had happened. But in reality, Chedorlaomer was simply gearing up, massing a coalition to come in and respond with uh, brutal cruelty. Verse 5, in the 14th year, King Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathaim, 
and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. And then they came back to invade in Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Chedorlaomer, we don't know a whole lot about him, but clearly he was not a man to be trifled with. This campaign to put this region back under his control became an unstoppable flood of brutality and destruction. Not just four or five cities that had rebelled against him, but throughout entire regions and all the way through from his travel from where he was down into where he wanted to be. Dr. Nelson Glick was a leading biblical archaeologist in the 20th century. His work led to the discovery of 1,500 ancient sites, including some of those being discussed in this very passage. Here are a few of his comments about what he and his team found regarding what we're reading here. These civilizations, speaking of the, in the region around Abraham, these civilizations had flourished till they were savagely liquidated by the kings of the east. They gutted every city and village from southern Syria through all of Transjordan and the Negev to Kadesh Barnea in Sinai. The rebellion of the small kings was brutally crushed. This comparatively minor insurrection was utilized as a pretext to settle old scores and to raid and ravage with unleashed ferocity. I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside laid waste. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkempt. And so, as we're reading through it, you know, the account is not <clears throat> graphic. It's sort of sterile and quick-paced, uh, but what's happening here is a big deal. To grasp just how powerful this fighting force from the east was, we take note of something very interesting in verse 5. These guys defeated the Rephaim. And uh, if you've been around Calvary Hanford for very long, or if you were here for our studies back in Genesis 6, you know that those guys were a race of monstrous giants uh, that w were around before the days of the flood in the days of Noah, pop back up after the flood, and will finally be defeated as Israel uh, takes over the land in, in the time of David. But we, so they defeated those giants and, and their kin and their fortresses and all of that. We're told they also brought down the Horites. These people lived in the inaccessible and virtually impregnable fortresses and rock cities in the mountains, and yet they were just swept away as if it was nothing. This should plant two ideas in our minds as we read this account. First, the magnificent power of providence. Abraham was there in the midst of this very region. He had no walls. He had no citadels. He lived in a tent out in the open. He had no chariots. He had no war elephants. Uh, he had none of these things. And yet, despite the crumbling of all the kingdoms around him, he is absolutely safe and sound. He is secured by the power of God, untouchable, shielded in the Lord's providential plan. And it's not because they just didn't notice him. It's because the Lord was protecting him. Now, the second thing that this campaign should make us think about is just how strong a foe Abraham would be facing. You know, when I think about um, magnificent uh, battle victories in the Bible, we think about David and Goliath, we think about Gideon, we think about 
uh, some of these stories that are, are drilled into us from, you know, from youth if, we're, um, if we grow up in the church. Uh, and for some reason, I don't know why, but you know, Abraham's fight against this group it never is on the list when I'm thinking about it. This is a really big deal. Uh, this, this, this group of people, this coalition of, of four kings and their armies from the east are, are just sweeping through, leaving nothing in their wake except destruction. Everyone that is in their path immediately falls down and is consumed by the fierceness of their might, whether they're giant Nephilim, whether they're people in you know, rocky fortresses in the sides of mountains, doesn't matter. And Abraham is going to face these guys uh, practically on his own. We'll get there. Verse 8 says this, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against Chedorlaomer of Elam, king title of Goyim, king Amraphel of Shinar, king Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. As they saw the fight approaching, the five kings of Canaan picked a spot to stand their ground. And it seems they did so for a particular reason. They thought they were, were fighting strategically. Verse 10, now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And so they thought, okay, this is going to be sort of built-in defenses for us. This is our home field advantage. These asphalt pits, which are going to be very dangerous and very deadly, they will kind of help us to control the battle. Here's how it went. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. So uh, this is going very poorly for these guys. The rest fled to the mountains. So these Canaanite kings and their people thought that they, these asphalt pits would serve as protection, but they ended up just being pitfalls to them. The wording there suggests that two of the kings themselves fell into a sticky grave. These are like the La Brea tar pits. If you've ever been down there or seen those depicted, that's what we're talking about. You don't want to fall in there. There's dinosaurs in there for one thing. But no, you don't want to fall in there. You're going to have a very bad end to your story. A lot of other people were falling in there too. Some made it to the mountains. That which was meant to be a defense became a snare to them. And this happens to human beings, not just in battles like this one, but in the course of life. God, in his word, warns us as Christians about this very danger. He says, hey, be careful about what you're using to try to defend yourself, try to defend your life, try to secure your life. Because in many cases, when we're using the world's wisdom or when we're using the world's mentality, that which we think is a defense is actually going to become a snare to us. And this is a particularly important warning for those of us who are Christians here tonight to keep in our hearts all the time. We don't keep ourselves safe and defended by the methods of the world. Psalm 106 talks about the danger of God's people mingling together with the nations. Not just that, that we are around unbelievers. There's really no way to avoid that. But adopting the ways of the world is what the psalm is talking about. And it says this in verse 36, the people of God served the idols of the nations, which became a snare to them. And so this is a spiritual principle that we need to take to heart and remind ourselves of often. Wealth does not make us secure. Worldly systems don't make us secure. Human leaders don't make us secure. It is the love of God that covers his people, like a mother hen keeping her chicks safe under her wings. God is our refuge and our strength. He is the ever-present help in time of trouble. 
Sadly, Lot and his family are going to be a historical object lesson to us that drives home this very principle, that when you make the world and its wealth and its systems your, your structure for security, when you're building your house, your life upon the sand of the world, you're going to be swept away when the storm comes, as opposed to those who build upon the rock, Jesus Christ. When the storms come, and come they will, uh, you will stand. Verse 11, the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Last time we saw Lot, we were told he set up his tent near Sodom. We don't know how much time has passed, but when we pan back to him, we see that he's living in the city. And most of you know from studying his life, he's not even going to stop there. The next time we see Lot, he's going to be sitting in the gates of the city, meaning that he's effectively a member of the city council of Sodom. And so he's very cozy uh, with the city of Sodom. He has become one of them, very friendly with these desperately wicked people. We would say he is assimilated into this city and into their culture. It wasn't just that he was rubbing shoulders with people in Sodom. Uh, he, was, he was very friendly with their way of life. He had adopted the, the perspective that they had on living life. No, he wasn't doing all of the sins that they were doing. Uh, and, and the New Testament, we, we remind ourselves often, the New Testament declares that Lot was a righteous man and his righteous soul was vexed. And yet, he's a picture to us of what we call a carnal Christian, a person who is a believer but isn't following after God, is someone who is uh, giving into the world system, to worldly temptations, to the world perspective, and, and living his life in such a way, and it only ends in ruin and disaster and waste. And so because he's living in Sodom, what happens? Lot and his family are swept away, even though it seems like he wasn't actively joined in the fight. As they're down in the valley of Siddim, he's at home, right? Oh, I'm not going to fight this fight with them. I don't have anything to do with that. Yes, you do have a lot to do with it. Even though you're home while they're battling it out, he had thrown in with this kingdom, the kingdom of Sodom. He was one of them. Instead of staying under the providential protection of God, he had made that mistake that the Israelites would make so many centuries later when they say, give us a king. And so he's there under the kingdom, under the rule, under the authority of the king of Sodom, and the result was disaster. Now, after weeks of uninterrupted victory, the kings from the east took something they shouldn't have. It's like when Abu touches the ruby in the Cave of Wonders, right? It all suddenly turns in a very bad way. Uh, the thing they took that they shouldn't have was Lot and his family because he was connected with Abraham, God's chosen vessel. I was watching a Wheel of Fortune clip the other day, you, uh, and, and the, the guy that was playing, he was on a real hot streak uh, he, in a single turn. He kept spinning and guessing correctly, and in, in just one turn, he racked up over $30,000 of cash, right? And he decided to go for one more spin only to hit bankrupt, and it was all gone, and they just moved on to the next person, and, and he lost it all. These kings are going to experience the same thing along with violent assault. Okay, so it's a little bit worse for them, I'd say, because Pat Sajak didn't go at the guy with a sword when he hit bankrupt. <laughs> Verse 13 says this, 
One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, they were bound by a treaty with Abram. Whether this guy was sent by Lot, which some suggest, or whether he was simply sent by God's grace, either way, here's something for us to consider. Abraham was the kind of man you could run to for help. Abraham was the kind of person that if you said, we need help, who, 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 do you, who are you going to call? Go call that guy. He'll help us. He'll, he'll do something. Uh, he was no Ebenezer Scrooge. He would take you in when you were on the run. And we're going to see it wasn't just for refugees or fugitives. Later, when some strangers, travelers are traveling by, he sees, he's like, hey, we got to show these guys hospitality. I'm going to make them a meal. I'm going to spend some time with them. That's the kind of person that Abraham was. We find Abraham still living by this forest of oak trees where he had settled down in the last chapter. And here we discover that Mamre isn't a place. It kind of seems like a place in the last passage. It says he settled by the oaks of Mamre. But here we find that it's not a place. He's a person. Abraham had made an alliance with him and his two brothers, and the three of these brothers were Amorites. Now, for all the big world-changing you know, historical things that are going on in this chapter, Verse 13 by itself is absolutely jam-packed with all kinds of things for us to consider and think about and marvel at. First of all, it says the oaks belonging to Mamre. Did they? Did they belong to him? God himself had told Abraham more than once that the land belonged to him, Abraham. He says, hey, all of this land is yours and your descendants forever. And yet, in this very next passage, we say, well, yeah, the oaks belonging to Mamre. Abraham had to live as a guest in his own inheritance. It was his. And yet we see him there living as a renter, having to ask permission to live by these oak trees. And so we see Abraham, again, being a man who did not demand his own rights as he walked with God. He's not a man who goes around swaggering. He's not a man that goes around, you know, running his mouth or getting all upset at people. Of course, he made his mistakes, and the book of Genesis catalogs some of them for us. But we see him as a man of deep humility here, not demanding his own rights, not being um, all upset that he doesn't get what he think is coming, thinks is coming to him. Instead, he trusted God. And we know from the New Testament's commentary on his life that he understood that the things he was really hope, hoping for weren't going to be found on our side of eternity. Rather, he knew that what he really was hoping for, that thing he really was watching for, was on the other side of eternity, that city whose builder and maker is God. Though it was all his by divine decree, he chose to live as a pilgrim, and he didn't pout about it. As Christians, we've been made many promises by God, things that the Lord is going to do for us, things that the Lord is going to give us, things that the Lord is going to accomplish. Some of those promises deal with the here and now, and many deal with the not yet. Hebrews talks about them being things we see from a distance. That better reality, that perfection of the heavenly city is being prepared for us. Meanwhile, though we are not there yet, we are to consider that place our true homeland. We are temporary residents on the earth and therefore should always be mindful of the end of the story and where we're headed. 
We're just in the waiting room right now, right? We're just in the queue waiting to get to the final destination. And it is going to happen. It is going to be ours. We are going to inherit the earth. uh, But that is not yet. That is for the future when the Lord establishes his kingdom and brings us home to be forever with him. Now, verse 13 also gives us the very first use of the term Hebrew. And this is the only time that Genesis is going to designate Abraham as a Hebrew. For as important as this word is and as commonplace to us as students of the Bible, there isn't agreement or consensus on what the word actually means for sure, or at least exactly. There are different theories, but there are two main theories. One is that it refers to the sons of Eber, Hebrew, right? And Eber was the great-grandson of Shem. We talked about him a few chapters ago. And remember, Genesis is the story not only of how God started the universe and not only how human beings began and how we began to mess everything up, but Genesis, more importantly, is the story of God narrowing his focus to select a particular line of people from whom would come the Messiah that we all so desperately need. Shem is the son of Noah that God chose to use for this purpose. The name Hebrew might be highlighting that lineage, reminding us, yeah, the son of Eber, the son of Shem, through whom God was going to send the Messiah. So a lot of folks think that's where this word comes from, or that's predominantly what it is referring to. The other theory is that the word Hebrew is related to an ancient verb that means immigrant or one who crosses over. Both ideas are telling and and interesting as we study Abraham's life because they both have levels of application. Now, in this context, in this very verse, we see Abraham the Hebrew, and why does it stand out? It stands out because every other person being listed is being listed according to their clan, according to their location, according to their people, right? You have all of these people, the Goyim and people from Sodom and people from wherever, Shinar and all of these different places. And now we come across, but this other guy, Abraham the Hebrew. And so it reminds us that Abraham, very importantly, was not an Amorite. He was not an Elamite. He was not a Sodomite or a Gomorrah. He wasn't any of these things. He is something absolutely different. Even though he himself had come out of the east, right? He had come out of the land that we would later call Babylon and now call Iraq, right? He came from Ur of the Chaldees, but he's not an Easterling anymore. He's now Abraham the Hebrew. He's been called out of that. He is something different. He's a man called out by God, living a life in view of God, being directed by God, being a child of God. And so even though he has this background or this heritage, And he he defines his life as, I'm a Hebrew now. I walk with God. I've been drawn out by the God of heaven and earth to be something separate and apart. On top of all this, verse 13 reveals that Abraham made an alliance with three Amorite brothers. Now, in later Hebrew history, under the law, this would be a no-no, right? It It was established in the law. But God had not given any such prohibition from what we can tell. And it gives us a sense of how Abraham conducted himself as a believer in an unbelieving world. Let's remember, Abraham had very little to go on when it comes to revelation or understanding. We have the whole unfolded, completed scripture to look from beginning to end. I mean, that's an amazing thing to realize that God has given us 
the entire book that takes us all the way back to the very beginning moment of space and time, all the way to the very end when human history comes to a close and we enter into eternity forever and ever, right? We have the whole thing. What did Abraham have? He had a couple of phrases that God had given him and some traditions, maybe, that he had heard from um, you know, his forebears in the line of Shem. We have very little you know, knowledge of what he you know, had been exposed to. And so we have no reason to think that he did anything wrong by allying with these guys. And instead, it gives us a sense of the way that he lived out this life of faith. And it's sort of interesting. As a believer in an unbelieving world, He did not assimilate the way that Lot had, but he also didn't isolate himself. John Phillips, Bible commentator, says he was separated, not secluded. And that's an important thing. That's the tension we are supposed to live in. Listen, God doesn't want us to go live in some isolated commune or monastery. The the idea that a bunch of Christians in the Middle Ages just all said, we're going to completely separate from the world and live in a monastery, never be bothered by anybody, and that's that's a mistake. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to cut ourselves off from the world. He wants us to, he sends us into the world so that we can bring light into the darkness, right? And so we live in this tension where we do not assimilate, but we do not isolate. We're separated, but not secluded. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're going to be associating with unbelievers. He says, uh, you have to associate with unbelievers. If I was telling you you can't associate with any unbelievers, you'd have to leave this world. But God has left us in this world so that not that we can become like unbelievers or assimilate into their culture, but so that we can bring them into the family of God and say, hey, why don't you join our side? Why don't you believe on Jesus Christ and have your life changed and become a new creation like we have been? And so we're not to be conformed into the image of the world. At the same time, we don't need to constantly recoil from everyone who's not an unbeliever. It's not that we look the other way on sin or act like it's not a big deal or anything like that. But the unbelievers out there are people who God loves. And he has sent us to go and be light to them and to, uh, as we go, that we be constantly growing, not only in our faith and in our piety towards the Lord, but also growing in our love for those whom God loves. So Abraham brings in this escapee. Let's see what happens next. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Why did Abraham get involved in this fight? I'm sure he had heard news of the widespread attacks. This wasn't a one-day thing. I mean, this would have been weeks and weeks going on. Perhaps he even saw the smoke rising on the horizon as these guys were advancing through the region. In the end, we must conclude that he was motivated by the Holy Spirit sent out to go, and indeed he was, to get involved. But the reason given, the sort of motivating factor that brought him into the fight was that he had heard his relative had been taken. This gives us another little insight into how Abraham lived in but not of the world. Abraham, he wasn't isolated, but I think this is interesting. He wasn't an interventionist either. He didn't go looking for ways to assert himself into these situations. He didn't make it his business to go to war because he knew better than others, after all. That's not what he was doing. He was really living a peaceable, quiet life, and all of this stuff was going on around him. And then finally, he's brought into this situation because of his connection to Lot. And so 
the nations of the world duking it out around him really had nothing to do with him. But once Lot was involved, and the literal term there used, I'm told, is his brother. When he found out Lot, his brother was, was involved, then Abraham got involved. And he got involved in a big way. Moses uses vivid language, figurative language for where we read assembled, or your version may say armed. Moses is using a term which means Abraham emptied out his men. Uh, or another way that translators uh, talk about this is that he unsheathed them. And so vivid figurative language, meaning that Abraham held nothing back from his household. He even strapped on a sword himself. And in this, we see the kind of moral courage that God can and will fill our hearts with when we are about his business. For the sake of this one brother and his family, Abraham risked everything and every, all the males in his household. It's interesting, the three Amorite brothers that he's allied with, why did they join the fight? Well, based on what we're reading, we have to assume that they joined the fight because they were in an alliance with Abraham. It's Abraham's idea. Abraham is clearly the general of this fight. It's Abraham's in the lead, right? And so we have to conclude that these three Amorite brothers only joined because of their, their treaty, even though their whole territory of their people, the Amorites, had been wiped out, had suffered the same fate as Lot, but they, it seems, would have been content to just let their kinsmen suffer and die as long as I'm safe in the forest. But Abraham, the believer, comes along and he says, hey, we're going to do something about this. And we're in a, a treaty together, and so you're going to come with me, and they agree. Consider for a moment that this verse, uh, or rather what this verse reveals about the size of Abraham's estate. He had 318 battle-ready male servants. And so this is a huge household. 318 fighter guys, that's a lot of guys, and that doesn't count younger people, older people, ladies. I mean, and so Abraham's got a huge household. It's like a small city. And not only were they willing to risk big to try to save those held captive, but they also put forth a very serious effort. These guys marched 120 miles in pursuit of Lot and these other captives. That's the distance from us to Monterey as the crow flies. That's how far they went to try to win these guys back. Now, their mission was not revenge, it was rescue. At the same time, we see that Abraham recognized there would be no negotiating with Chedorlaomer. This wasn't a guy, I mean, you could buy off. It probably would have been in Abraham's interest to go with lots of sacks of gold and say, hey man, how about we trade? He had lots of gold and silver and flocks and all of that. And he, he, he probably, in a worldly sense, probably sort of said, yeah, we don't have enough strength to destroy these giant killers. Let's bring money and buy back these captives. But Abraham knew there would be no negotiating, no diplomacy in this case. Sometimes evil needs to be contended with personally and without compromise, giving no quarter, right? I mean, so it, there are times where, where we, you know, whether you want to talk about the theories of just war and those sorts of things. But there are some times where you say, you know what, we're, not, we're past the point of negotiating with Adolf Hitler. We're past the point of negotiating with these people that wholesale butcher tens of thousands, millions of people 
We're not, gonna, we're not going to negotiate with a person like that. We're going to meet them with justice. Verse 15, and he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So the kings of, of Canaan, they had this strategy about, look, okay, we've got our asphalt pits. We've got all this stuff. This is going to all go in our favor. And it completely fell apart immediately as far as the story goes. Abraham just has 318 guys. That's a lot of people in one sense, but not against a coalition of four armies that had swept through an entire region and only strengthened and enriched themselves with every stop. And their strategy, he had a strategy, hey, we're going to attack at night, we're going to split up a little bit. But effectively, they had no resources. They just had guys with swords. And, and yet we see what? We see that when God is with you, it doesn't matter if your resources are lesser. It doesn't matter if you have the geographical advantage. It doesn't matter if you don't have the things that you should have. If God is for us, who can be against us? And it was God's victory. That's made clear to us in the next set of verses. But Abraham was the agent of rescue that day. And this is like the work God sends us out to do, rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness and showing them the light of the gospel. We see here the tender mercy of God and how it just filled Abraham's heart. Lot was getting what he deserved, right? He was. Remember the last passage, how he had abandoned Abraham and said, yeah, I'm not even willing to tell my herdsmen to cool it. I'm going to take the best land for myself. I don't need to be with you. Thanks for taking care of me all this time. You know, he, effectively, Abraham had been like Lot's adoptive father, but, but Lot was like the prodigal son, like, I don't care if you're around, I'm out. And he had left and instead went and said, hey, let's cozy up to the people of Sodom. So Lot was getting what he deserved, right? As the great Augustus McRae said, you ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw, right? That makes sense. That's justice, isn't it? Thank God for his mercy. Because we, all of us, are outlaws. You're an outlaw. I'm an outlaw. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we are all worthy to be swept away in the wrath of God because of our failure and our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ and rescued us even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. We are saved by grace. Therefore, since we have been shown mercy, we do not give up. We live on renouncing sin and proclaiming the truth and letting light shine in the darkness and allowing the power of God to operate in and through our lives so that others might have the chance to be saved as well. Not only do we see the mercy of God in the way that Abraham saved Lot, but in how he saved all the others too. He didn't just extract one guy and his family. He saved them all. These pagan Sodomites and Amorites, these people who were strangers to Abraham, they still had incredible value to God. And God loved them. He did, even though they were lost. And though the Lord would soon judge these people for their refusing to turn from their sin, we see here God reaching out with mercy and grace and help in their time of need, though they did not deserve it. As we close, let's just think about a moment of application from this passage for ourselves. There's a good question we might each ask ourselves tonight. Am I ready to be unsheathed by my master? 
The 318 men all had a lot of different jobs in Abraham's house. Abraham wasn't a mercenary. These guys weren't mercenaries. They were servants in the household, probably had lots of different jobs with the flocks, in the house, with the fields, all these different things. And at the same time, Abraham still prepped himself and prepped these servants to be ready to do battle if need be. Each one of them knew how to handle a sword, and they were ready to be poured out when the moment came. They did not cower. They did not flinch. They did what was necessary. Of course, the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They are spiritual. Our sword is the Word of God. Do we know how to use it? When the time comes, do you and I, do we know how to use God's Word to help rescue people who are trapped in darkness? Are we training ourselves to understand what God has said? Are we ready to be called upon by God to be brothers and sisters to the rescue, pouring ourselves out that others might be saved? We can be. It's something we're going to go on doing for the rest of our lives, training, preparing, be, making ourselves ready to be unsheathed uh, as people who want to serve the Lord. This is what God wants, and we want what God wants.